let's start what we have come into the room to do <laughs> right on here goes one two three This is WCBN FM Ann Arbor, and you're listening to It's Hot in Here. We've got a wonderful show planned for you today. We've got special guest Benjamin Morse, SNRE graduate student, as well as Will Weber, founder of Journeys International, and uh, some clips from Jimmy Chin, a renowned rock climber and world traveler. So, again, this is WCBN FM Ann Arbor. Hello. Um, if you'd like to call in at any point during the show, you can go ahead and call in at our line 734-763-3500. We will be talking today about ecotourism. Um, so look forward to that. And we are going to kick it off with a song by Steppenwolf. This is Born to be Wild. It was first recorded in 1967 and it was released one year later. It's one of Rolling Stone magazine's top 500 songs. And I think it's one that you'll all enjoy. Welcome back 
to WCBN FM Ann Arbor. It's your Friday afternoon environmental talk and music show. It's hot in here with news and grooves, environmental news. And I was just sitting here in studio looking at Will Weber to my left, founder of the local ecotourism company Journeys International. And he was saying, I like this song. Will, you graduated from the School of Natural Resources a while back. Is that correct? That's right. Um, I have a PhD uh, granted in 1980. Woo! And this song had been popular for some time, even back then, right? I remember from my undergraduate days, actually, yes. <laughs> Those were in Wisconsin-Madison? Or... That's right. Yep. Fantastic. Well, we all share a love for that song and for the wild places that are at the heart of any ecotourism or adventure travel industry. We have both an older generation and an up-and-coming generation in studio with us today. Will on my left, Ben... Morris Benjamin Morse on my right, studying and working in ecotourism sectors internationally. But before we talk more with Benjamin and with Will, um, both of whom I want to say too are returned Peace Corps volunteers. So there's a sub theme there. I want to cut to Jason. Remember when we were in the studio a few weeks ago at the SNRE with Jimmy Chin, who's a really rugged adventure traveler, photographer, and climber. And we were talking about wildness and wild places and whether this whole industry is doing damage to them. Do you remember that conversation? Absolutely. I mean, it was back in November, and things were buzzed at SNRE with with this famous expeditionist, famous photographer uh, coming in, and unfortunately we had a few minutes to settle down and and chat with him, and and we'll play some of that interview uh, for you shortly. But I I think uh, really one of the... The, the crux of the interview here is, is this idea that, that he grew up in Minnesota and, and because of his experience with nature, uh, went out and traveled and, and became someone who's able to uh, show what, what natural and wild things are to, to people around the world and really inspire them. Um, and of course, this, this always comes with the paradox that uh, to inspire them means to uh, have more folks out there, more folks experiencing this. And it really goes back to the, the old idea of, of whether we're loving these places to death or not, which is, um, I think, something that environmentalists and the environmental movement uh, has always struggled with. So uh, I won't say more. We can go ahead and let Jimmy speak for himself here. But again, this is uh, an interview that Rebecca and I did back in November. I saw that you're originally from Minnesota, which is sort of also cold and flat. Yeah. We have a lot of folks from this area, but we also have a lot of folks that want to end up out west of the school. So how, how did you make that transition? Well, my parents both worked at Mankato State, which is now Minnesota State University, so they, they had the school year calendar, and in the summers we would go on road trips, and I think I was about nine or ten when we drove out to Glacier National Park, and um, you know, I got out of the car, I remember at Lake McDonald, I looked around and I was like, alright, why don't we live here? <laughs> you are both adults and get to make decisions on <laughs> issues and I'm a little bit disappointed that you know you didn't choose to live here in Glacier National Park you know you, you yeah, yeah. Um, I was just I was so blown away by the mountains there and not to say that you know I loved growing up in Minnesota and I had this big ravine behind my house and a big river valley and I was always running around down there but when I saw the mountains out west for the first time I was completely blown away and so I think that was always in my mind and after my freshman year when I was 18 I had a car and the first thing I did was convince my parents that I was going to drive out to Glacier National Park and work out there, which is what I did. I drove out to Glacier and I waited tables for the rising sun line. And they were cool with that? And they were cool with that. Not entirely, because they were like, you should be doing your internship in D.C. or, in, you know. But I was like, hey, look, I just, I spent a lot of, like, my late teens and my early 20s convincing my parents that I was just going to go check this thing out and then I was going to get on track. Yeah. Whatever. Wait, how, but- how had they come to choose to live in Minnesota again? Well, they met in uh, Vanderbilt at okay. graduate school, and then they moved to Chicago after school. Um, they got married, moved to Chicago in the 70s, and they were like, okay, wait, this is a little sketchy. I'm not sure we want to not kids. sure we want to raise kids here. And they heard that Minnesota was a really great place to raise a family. Okay. So, <laughs> so they, they, had, they, they headed to Minnesota, and they both got jobs at the university um, they're both librarians mm-hmm. and 
um, taught library sciences in, at Mankato State University, which is what it was called at the time, and uh, raised us in Mankato. That's amazing that you come from like a long line of library scientists. Yeah. <laughs> Up out in Glacier, and I know in your early 20s you're, you're climbing around. Yeah. Uh, when was the point where you realized you were sort of that unlikely hero that, that had more to offer? I haven't that? come to that conclusion yet, <laughs> but... Will you keep us posted? Yeah, <laughs> yes, but honestly, it was almost like a non-decision because I knew that I couldn't live a life where I wasn't, you know, really passionate about what I was doing. I think the big realization, I don't know when it happened, but it was that, like, this is the life I have one life without going into, like, any ideas of reincarnation or afterlife or anything like that. Yeah. I mean, like, I definitely had this realization that, you know, it was really important to live life to the fullest and that I, I didn't really foresee myself living kind of a cookie-cutter life. I don't know if that was in reaction to the expectations of my parents because they definitely were very traditional Chinese um, family values and expectations of career. Um, so I don't know if it was a, necessarily a rebellion against that or if it was just the natural state that is who I am. But I took off and I knew that I wanted to be in mountains or living like a really exciting kind of life and it wasn't easy because it was a really struggling upstream against everything that I was being told not just by my parents but by society you know my dad was like had a really strong sense of like Chinese pride and pretty classic like I started studying martial arts as I think I was like five or six you know I'm pretty sure I was one of the youngest, if not the youngest kid in Minnesota to get a black belt in Taekwondo. And I competed the whole time. And it was because my dad was basically saying, hey, if you ever encounter any sort of, like, racial issues... You can take them out. (laughs) You have, like, my permission to stand up for yourself. Not necessarily, like, look for a fight, but, you know. um, So I definitely grew up feeling... Like, I was different, and my family was very different. But, you know, I don't think I ran into any of that, any issues of, like, hey, what are you doing Um, because you're Asian in, like, the climbing community. Mm -hmm. Because the climbing community in Yosemite, in a lot of ways, they all felt a little bit like rebels and outcasts, Mm -hmm. like people who'd chosen to, to live in their cars or in caves to climb and be climbing bombs and nobody questioned, you know, taking leftover pizzas off of uh, the table at Curry Village to support their climbing careers, you know. I mean, that was the beauty of it. In some ways, I really felt like I found my tribe when I I showed up in Yosemite. And so then... uh the photography piece comes a little bit later. Yeah, I probably picked up a camera when I was 23 or 24. And total fluke. Had no inkling of ever becoming a photographer, even after I picked up a camera for the first time. It just so happened that my friend, a very good friend of mine, was, you know, really into photography and was kind of making a bid at becoming a professional photographer and he he gave me his camera and showed me how to use it and um, I took a photo with it and he was trying to sell his photos at the time it was you know slide transparencies and he sold one photo was the photo that I took and so you know I took the money and I bought a camera with it yeah and they paid $500 for the photo and you know, when I was 24, and the logic was, hey, if I take one photo a day, or one photo a month, I can do this for forever, you know? Which is 
obviously skewed logic, but, you know, I didn't come to photography from, like, some artist background or some initial inspiration to be a journalist or anything like that. But I did really enjoy it, and I loved shooting, and I loved, you know, creating images and fell in love with it pretty immediately and then had some fairly good success early on that kind of gave me some confidence that maybe this was something that I could do. And, and where, what do you think some of the keys to that success were going from, you know, the plan which is to take once a month just to keep climbing to obviously now doing that geo in North Face, Pagoni, all, all of those names? I don't know. I mean, in life you have some happy accidents. You have some unhappy accidents too, but you know, this is like a, almost like a happy accident where like I discovered this thing unknowingly and so I didn't have very many expectations which, you know, sometimes having a preconceived notion of what is supposed to be and how things are supposed to go can hinder the process of what you're doing. And so I think not having expectations and just really diving into it for the sake of shooting was was really great for me. But then, of course, I started looking at, you know, pictures and where they were published and what kind of pictures are being published. And I thought, I, I think I can do better than that. And that's, you know, being published. And so I would try to outdo what I had seen and then I would try to submit it and eventually you know I had a few things published in the Patagonia catalog and I shot an expedition that I went on um, that Mountain Hardware had given me some gear for and they ended up doing that entire catalog with the photos like exclusively of the photos that I had taken that's pretty awesome and that was I was 24 Oh, man. And so then it was just like, game on, and then I was off to the races. Yeah. Fast forward now, 15 years, and, and you're the guy that's getting called in to do the shots. I just saw on your blog you were doing uh, some stuff with Honnold for Squarespace. Yeah. Uh, and you've got all these other climbers that are doing some of the really leading-edge climbing. Yeah. Um, what is that like trying to deal with conditions where uh, not only... Do you not control the, the world around it, but also you're dealing with climbers that you only get one or two takes? Yeah, it can be very stressful. <laughs> you know, when you're on a commission shoot, it's obviously, there's a lot of, at stake. If it's a big campaign, there's a lot of money at stake. There's um, a lot of responsibility as well to obviously deliver um, the, the, the product. But there's also responsibility to your, the athletes that you're working with. They want to be represented in the best light possible. There's a lot of safety issues. There's a lot of condition, um, environmental condition issues. Um, so, you know, it's a lot of planning, and it's it's also having a vision and executing, and it takes a lot of leadership. You have to put together a good team. Uh, you have to have everybody understand what the goals are, and then you have to go and execute. And so at this level, the expectation is that you're going to deliver under any circumstances. And so there's a lot of pressure to, to produce, um, but you have to kind of weigh risks and, and all the other variables. So mm. it can be really intense, but it's also really satisfying. Yeah. Um, when you pull off a shoot like that. But there's also risks to the environment and to, you know, the idea of that whole mosaic of intersecting industries is kind of loving these spaces to death and yeah. having their own footprint and in an era of such broad anxieties about climate change and human impacts, there's the specific anxieties too about yeah. climbing itself or outdoor, you know, how do you, how does all that, how do you navigate that stuff? Do you think people are you're working with are, are really concerned about those issues? And yeah, I mean, I think in general, people who are outdoor people have a certain appreciation for the natural environment, right? Mm -hmm. And climbing for the sake of climbing is really important, but, and I can't speak for everybody, but I mean, the real ultimate reason that I'm out doing these things is because I love 
nature and I love being in the wind and the rain and the elements and experiencing um, all that Mother Nature has to offer. And so, you know, at the root of what I shoot is exploration and adventure and climbing and skiing and these kind of sports. Um, I call them lifestyle sports. You know, people who live the life to do to do these things. Um, but you know, there's also the aspect of showing the beauty of what it is to be in the outdoors and how humans can interact with the with with the outdoors. And so, you know, of course, there's the hope that if you can share that beauty and that appreciation for the natural environment that people will in some ways subconsciously or consciously you know have a sense of protecting those spaces and appreciating them thank you and welcome back to it's hot in here on wcbn fm ann arbor uh, this is Jason Coleman, and what we were just listening to was an interview recorded back in November with uh, Jimmy Chin, the famed climber and photographer. We'll be posting uh, the full interview with uh, with about 15 minutes of additional material, as well as photographs of, of the interview on our blog at itshotinhere.us. He was a real pleasure to talk to. I don't know uh, that I've ever spoken with someone who is so calm and, and so centered uh, throughout the, the dialogue. It's not surprising that he is... Uh, able to do uh, the things that um, he does. Uh, we're going to go over to a quick uh, song transition. What we've chosen for today is uh, Don't Fence Me In by Bing Crosby, uh, written in 1934 by Bob Fletcher, who was actually an engineer with the Department of Highways in uh, Helena, Montana. 20th Century Fox paid uh, Bob 250 bucks for this poem term song uh, to be used in a western themed film musical uh, but unfortunately it was uh, never actually produced but it was recorded by Bing Crosby Oh give me land lots of land under starry skies above don't fence me in Let me ride through the wide open country that I love Don't fence me in Let me be by myself in the evening breeze And listen to the murmur of the cottonwood trees Send me off forever, but I ask you please don't fence me in Just turn me loose Let me straddle my old saddle Underneath the western sky On my cayuse Let me wander over yonder Till I see the mountains rise I want to ride to the ridge Where the west commences and gaze at the moon till I lose my senses And I can't look at hobbles And I can't stand fences Don't fence me in Oh, give me land, lots of land Under starry skies Don't fence me myself in the evening breeze and listen to the murmur of the cottonwood trees send me off forever but I ask you please don't fence me in just turn me loose let me straddle my old saddle underneath the western skies on my cayuse, let me wander over yonder till I see the mountains rise. Ba -da -ba -ba -ba. I want to ride to the ridge where the west commences 
and gaze at the moon till I lose my senses and I can't look at hobbles and I can't stand fences. Don't fence me in, no. Papa, don't you fence me in. Hello, welcome back to WCBN FM Ann Arbor. It's hot in here today. It sure is. We've got two wonderful guests in studio talking with us about ecotourism. That is our theme for today. Um, and that song that you just listened to, that beautiful tune, was um, by Bing Crosby. Don't fence me in. As um, Jason said it was written by an engineer um, and a poet from the Department of Highways and I think that really represents some of the meaning and some of the feeling behind that beautiful song um, as highways were being built in Montana this uh, wonderful poet um, that engineer Bob Fletcher decided not to be fenced in uh, and I think that's a wonderful segue into the two guests that we have in studio Benjamin Morse who studies at SNRE's a master's student studying ecotourism and we also have Will Weber who is a professional in the field and founder of um, Journeys International here in Ann Arbor so talk about not being fenced in in your career right. what a great way to live and work in the whole wide world and I I think that both of you all were in the Peace Corps. Am I correct about that? Can you tell us about Peace Corps, Benjamin? Yeah, yeah, of course. So, um, yeah, we were both in the Peace Corps. Um, I served in Ethiopia from 2011 to 2013. And I think that we can all relate with this concept of being fenced in as travelers. Um, I think that... You know, growing up, I, I traveled internationally since I was, you know, just a little kid, and I always had that notion inside of me to travel, and I had that burning, and I think that that's something as as travelers, and now, you know, looking to pursue this ecotourism as more of a professional career um, venture, it's it's definitely something that we we consider on a daily basis. You know, we're always feeling like, hey, we got to get out there, and we gotta we gotta go experience the world. Well, where were you a Peace Corps volunteer, and when? Well, I was unfenced in Nepal <laughs> in the uh, early 70s. I was a math science teacher, and then I worked in the conservation education program, helping to set up the Nepal National Parks Office, which was a very exciting opportunity as a volunteer. So both of you, both of you came into the passion for this probably even earlier than Peace Corps, but it allowed you to build relationships, I would say. Yeah, yeah, absolutely. Um, like I said, I, I traveled internationally since I was a little kid, and I remember my father, um, he always made it a point to get out of the resort and, you know, to go experience something that was beyond the walls of the, the resort life there and, you know, go out and eat the food and experience the culture and hear the language and, and learn about the music and the history of the area. And I think that cross-cultural interaction is something that's very, very important for, um, you know, sectors like ecotourism industry. Absolutely. Resorts tend to be very much confined, very much fenced in. Um, so it's interesting that you had the opportunity to travel as a young kid. What about you, Will? Did you have a similar traveling experience or what got you into this field? You know, I kind of related to Jimmy Chin and his parents taking him around and seeing the West. Mm -hmm. My parents uh, were just working class people, but they managed to save enough to take a vacation once a, once a year, and that gave me my passion for travel. Um, Nepal was my first overseas experience, but once I got a taste of it and came back here to graduate school at SNRE, um, I knew very shortly that uh, I wanted to continue traveling in my life and try to develop a model where travelers could actually be useful, not simply take in experiences, but but give back. You know, that if you really develop a, a good interaction that the people you visit benefit as much as you do. And that's the kind of model we've been working with yeah. at Journeys. Okay, interesting. Very, very exciting. Um, for our listeners um, and for those of us in studio who are a little less familiar with ecotourism, can you, can you sum that up for us? What exactly is and what does ecotourism mean to you? So ecotourism is, is kind of a concept that came around in the 80s, um, and, it, and it came from the notion that mass tourism, you know, had all of these very negative social and environmental impacts associated with it, and people started seeing the places that they loved, you know, being absolutely loved to death, and I think that that was, that was something that, you know, ecotourism was kind of conceived out of, um, and, you know, as we move forward with ecotourism, that term um, is actually one of the most controversial terms within the tourism uh, sector because there are so many definitions out there and it's very ambiguous. Um, but recently, there's a little bit more consensus about what ecotourism really stands for. Um, so 
the there are three components. So kind of the nature based um, activity, you know. So focusing on the mega flora, the mega fauna, um, and going out and visiting and experiencing in nature um, is kind of one of the main main focuses of it. But also, you know, something that differentiates it a little bit from wildlife tourism or nature based tourism um, is kind of this educational component to it. Um, so eco tourists are are very highly motivated to learn. So they want to go and they want to learn and they want to learn about the the physical environment, the ecosystems that are there. But they also want to learn how they can participate and you know actually help change these areas for the better. Um, and then you know learn about these different concepts and bring it back home with them. And I think that that's something that a lot of eco tourists are motivated by. Um, and then kind of the third pillar, the third aspect of it is kind of the sustainability aspect of it. And and this is really how, how do we make tourism sustainable? How do we stop loving these places to death? You know, how do we go and we contribute to an area and and really instead of detracting from the ecosystems that are that are there, how do we continue to add to it and continue to build capacity both in the local communities um, as well as with the specific tour operation Um, so that's a a little bit of a summary and and will was mentioning in our pre-show conversations a kind of shift from the plain old ecotourism emphasis to the sustainable tourism emphasis in his experience as a private sector professional on this would you say that's fair will uh yes i think for many years, maybe going back into the 18th century when tourism really began, or 19th century, the notion was you needed to build a particular circumstance that would host foreign visitors. And that should be pretty much like the culture they were coming from, so they'd feel comfortable. In fact, Yellowstone National Park, you know, the idea was to build this big lodge where people would feel very comfortable and they'd have big balls in the evening and, and musicians playing. But I think, again, in, in the middle of uh, the last uh, century, uh, you know, in the, in the 1970s, after I came back from the Peace Corps, I think a lot of people came back from the Peace Corps and said, hey, you know, there's so much more to learn about as a tourist. And the best way to do that is to avoid these big hotels, avoid the notion you must have familiar food. Try the local food. Try to learn a little of the local language. So to add to Benjamin's three pillars, I'd say respect for local culture is a really significant dimension of ecotourism. It's just amazing, and I think that that ties back into what um, Benjamin said, like loving these loving these places to death. How do you create a situation where you go in and you, you can love a place without actually um, pretending as if that place doesn't exist by essentially building this fortress that you're comfortable with? Why not be uncomfortable? You know, it just... Just off of a great experience, three days with our Costa Rican senior guide who was visiting us here in Ann Arbor and marveling at snow and ice. It was really fun to to have him. But he is involved in a program working with local people who may have natural environments on their property. And particularly the great green macaw requires uh, wild almond trees for nesting cavities and for food. And Mm -hmm. they're also very valuable for timber. Mm -hmm. He's working with people who are paying farmers who have great who have almond trees uh, to not cut their trees by offering to pay them a certain amount a thousand dollars a year and an additional bonus every time he can bring someone to their farm to show them the great green macaws Mm -hmm. and it's a wildly successful program. There's all kinds of Costa Ricans in the habitat where these macaws were once growing rare who are now trying to cultivate this kind of additional income opportunity. And I think that's the magic, really, of ecotourism. Mm-hmm. When you get the right influence, the right potential for the economy to benefit local people, not the entrepreneurs who build the, the oceanside resorts or the luxury spas, but who can adapt their own relatively natural lifestyle to benefit from foreign tourism. That's really, to me, that's the situation we're always looking for when we develop a new program. Okay, interesting. Yeah, getting economies to benefit the local people as opposed to those people that are coming in and, again, building these fortresses. And possibly <laughs> displacing local people yes, from their exactly. land. Yeah. Okay. Yeah, and and one small point to add on that, I think that it's really important, um, you know, for ecotourism to 
to actually thrive in an area in a sustainable way. Um, you need to go in there and ecotourism needs to be in addition to what's already there. Um, let's say it's a, a really thriving fishing community and, and that's great and maybe people go in to, to see that and experience that and share their culture. Um, but, you know, ecotourism could be in addition to that. So as, as long as it maintains the integrity of, you know, the local farming practices or mm -hmm. or even if it's just a, a nature, a natural area there that's, that's you know, mainly valued for the ecosystem services or, or just even the, the aesthetic value that's there. Um, and, you know, ecotourism really should just be in addition to. Sort of like gravy or icing on a cake, I guess. <laughs> oh I, I want to cut to another song that actually echoes a few of these themes. It's a tune that Eddie Vedder recorded as part of a soundtrack for the film Into the Wild, which was produced and written by Sean Penn. That film was based on a 1996 book, um, and that nonfiction book is about the travels of Christopher McCandless across North America and his sort of life spent in the Alaskan wilderness in the early 1990s. So it evokes these tensions between, um, you know, society with a capital S, capitalist industrialized society and the smaller scale small s societies that you all are advocating respect for it's a beautiful tune it showcases that lead singer of pearl jam in a whole new way so let's take a listen to that while we muse on this basic definition of ecotourism and come back to talk about different forms of it that are emerging now across asia and the middle east and north america with mm -hmm. oh, some mystery to me we have agreed we have agreed And you think you have to want more than you need Until you have it all You won't be free Society You're a crazy breed I hope you're not lonely Without me Want more than you have, you think you need And when you think more than you want, your thoughts begin to bleed I think I need to find a bigger place Cause when you have more than you think, you need more space Society, you're crazy Hope you're not lonely without me Society, crazy and deep Hope you're not lonely without me Society, crazy and deep. I 
hope you're not lonely Beautiful, beautiful song. Uh, again, it's WCBN FN Ann Arbor. It's this is it's hot in here. Uh, SNRE's weekly environmental talk show. We're joined today by Will and Ben, uh, both focusing on ecotourism and, and its various aspects. Uh, in the first portion, we discussed quite a bit about what ecotourism is, uh, and, and I think where where I want to go with this now is is where can we expect it to go, and, and a little bit of, of how do we get here. So something we were discussing during the song here was it was the founding of, of Will's company, Journeys International, and, and how it got to be uh, where it is. So I hope you don't mind repeating the, the story a bit here. And let us know, where did Journeys come from? Well, my wife and I were graduate students in the uh, mid-70s, and I was in the master's program at SNRE, and I did a term paper on what became ecotourism. It wasn't the term wasn't defined then, but we were looking at uh, nature travel and how nature travel could be potentially beneficial. And got really interested, and my wife got interested, and in some ways, I think, uh, graduate education became even less interesting than this idea of actually trying it out. <laughs> so we, uh, re- t- talking to friends about it, we recruited a group of uh, tens, 10 other university community members and went to Nepal for basically the cost of our tickets and did a trek to Mount Everest with the idea that we would try to do it on a local style. The previous notion was uh, you need all kinds of porters and you need all kinds of equipment and you need tables and linen and western food and our idea was no, 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 it'll be a more minimalist trip. We did use a couple porters but in spite of all kinds of problems the trip came off very well and uh, we met a wonderful Sherpa who was also very encouraging he says you guys just find the people I'll take care of everything and for the 30 years that we worked with Pemba Sherpa that's exactly what he did so he took care of everything wonderfully on that end and we tried to create the enthusiasm on this end and the model worked and so we spread out around the world with it yeah, and tell us a little bit about uh, I was flipping through the, the pamphlet here but tell us a little bit about where where you guys take trips now I mean or maybe it'd be easier from this where don't you take trips oh uh, well we do very few in Europe and very few in North America uh, but we've got trips all over Africa well Africa seems to <laughs> be having its problems these days but it's still very safe to go to uh, uh, Uganda Rwanda Tanzania South Africa uh, people are going back to Egypt now we have a program in Egypt um, we have had programs in West Africa uh, Ben Ben from was a volunteer in Ethiopia we have programs in Ethiopia now uh, a lot of Asian countries the Himalayas was really our founding region and so we have programs in Ladakh uh, India Nepal Bhutan, Tibet. Uh, I just came back from Indonesia uh, this past summer. We had a big program in Sumatra, and we have a lot of people go to Indonesia with us. Oh, that sounds excellent. Amazing. You, you mentioned an itinerary emerging in Iran also, I think, was. Yes, I'll be going to Iran with the group uh, in September, and the trip was quickly oversubscribed, so we've just added another departure in October. It's funny, you know, a lot of people will just step back. They're appalled at the notion of going to Iran, but everyone I've spoken with is just enchanted by their experience in Iran. If they find Iranians are very welcoming, very happy to have Americans, eager to talk about our culture. There's a real separation between what the uh, mullahs uh, feel and the Revolutionary Guard and what the local people feel. Here in America, we tend to feel personally responsible for our government, but in much of the world, people understand that the government is one thing Mm -hmm. and the people who endure it are another. (laughs) It's funny you should say that on NPR this morning. I was hearing experts on the situation in Yemen reflecting on exactly that. The Yemeni people are peacefully calling for change and for certain kinds of things, and we mustn't confuse the people with the government anywhere we go in the world, Mm -hmm. I suppose. Um, So, Building off what you were saying there, and as part of Journeys International, can you tell us a little bit more about what journeys you provide? And it says here, um, just reading through some of your, your things, to adventure deeper. What, what does that mean? Uh, the idea is to experience more than you could experience simply using a guidebook or just wandering around by using local experts, by planning experiences that really take people into the culture, maybe take them down streets that uh, they wouldn't find on their own. Um, 
take them into local homes, really want to acquire a sense of what local people are thinking. You know, we can use in our society new models, not that we'll embrace the way a monk lives or uh, a Peruvian farmer, but the thing that we discovered early on is there's so many ways to be happy. And in America, we miss a lot of them. You know, we're such a material society dependent on income. So many people have the goal of making a lot of money as their primary destination uh, in life, whereas in much of the world, they really don't have a chance at making mm -hmm. a lot of money. And so they find happiness in other ways, through relationships, helping each other out, uh, notions of community and cooperation. And Americans need to see that kind of uh, society to appreciate the different ways that we can grow as people. And so it seems to me that you've you've found happiness both through the, the journeys that you've been able to take others on, but, but also the experience of having this family-run business. Um, as far as I understand, uh, the future of Journeys uh, remains in the family. Can you talk a little bit about that? I feel so fortunate to have chosen this career um, because it's been rewarding. Um, my daughter is now taking over. We didn't push this on our children, but my daughter, I think, sensed, because she traveled with us, I guess, like, Ben traveled with his parents uh, a lot when he was very young. Our children also traveled uh, with us, and she's embraced it. She has a master's in business now, so she has probably more technical competence than we had. She's right now in New York at the New York Times Travel Show, <laughs> representing Journeys. Wow. Um, and the other staff in the office as well. We have about 10 people, and many of them have been with us for 20 years or more. <laughs> so it's, it's, a, it's a generational thing. And the relationships we have with our operas, we seldom... We seldom want to change just because, you know, somebody's giving us a better deal or they have newer vehicles. The notion of long-term relationships really builds into our business. And, and I think there's something very gratifying about a friendship that just continues to endure and deepen. And, and that's, I think that's part of ecotourism, too. You actually have relationships. Many of our clients will meet somebody on the trip, they'll, they'll discover common interests, and they become pen pals, and maybe they support the local relatively poor person's kids going to school. Maybe they host them on a visit to the United States. There's a, there's a great deal of cultural exchange that goes on, and the longer you have a relationship, the more wonderful that feels. Our next musical track speaks to that, actually. It's a Sarah Barre tune, um, Many the Miles, about relationships across distance and across uh, both the miles and cultural distance that can separate people. Let's hear a little bit of that tune, and we'll come back to talk with Benjamin about not only the cultural differences between our country and the places we visit, but also the cultural differences among tourists from different parts of the world who are increasingly traveling in our direction and other directions. Let's hear many of the miles. slow down you would have thought by now I'd learned something
Welcome back to WCBN-FM Ann Arbor. It is hot in here. We've got a lot of talk about all kinds of travel going on with Will Weber of Journeys International and Benjamin Morse, who is rapidly becoming one of a new generation of experts on the diversity of what we could call the ecotourism or adventure travel sector. And um, as we were listening to that beautiful Sarah Bareilles tune, Many of the Miles, we were talking about some of those forums from mindfulness travel to yoga travel to music festival travel and new sectors emerging not only within North American and European markets, but internationally. Benjamin, tell us tell us what you're working on. Yeah, so... Um you know, I'm, I'm working on right, a thesis right now um, as part of my requirement here at SNRE. And kind of the main focus of the thesis is to see, to kind of answer that question of, you know, what, what can ecotourism do for the environment? Um, you know, does ecotourism actually lead to more environmentally responsible behaviors? And, you know, there are a lot of different models out there. There have been a lot of different studies done on this topic, um, different perceptions, values, attitudes, knowledge, uh, place attachment, you know, that have been conceived as potential antecedents to environmentally responsible behavior, Um, but specifically focusing on Korea and kind of the Asian context of ecotourism. Um, Throughout my literature review and kind of the first phases of these research, I've, I've really got to know and understand that ecotourism is conceptualized and manifested within cultures, within ecotourists, within operations, very, very differently depending on the context. And to take Korea as a specific example, um, you know, going back to those three initial points that I brought earlier, the nature-based, the learning-based, and sustainability-based aspects of ecotourism, um, the Western construct, um, you know, derived from Western conservation ethics of, you know, we're talking about being fenced in and you know, our national park system is is basically founded on that principle of you know, let's in. let's set it away and, and let's keep it pristine and untouched. And and there's kind of a dichotomy that exists between humans and nature. Whereas in the West or in the Asian context, um, there's more of an interdisciplinary relationship with nature, um, stemming from Zen Buddhism and and Taoism and Confucianism um, in, in the Asian context. That's that's really what derives and drives a lot of the manifestation stations within that context. Um, And then you look at kind of the educational component of it. And I think that in the Asian side of things, it's really trying to cultivate um, knowledge, you know, in, in order to develop. And and there are different forms of ecotourism. And as we were discussing over the break, there's, you know, yoga tourism, and there are all, all sorts of other different manifestations of this concept that are really starting to come out. And um, I think it's, it's very important to understand that there are a lot of differences between cultures. Mm-hmm. So you'll be traveling to Korea for this summer, correct? To work on your, your thesis and build on that? What will you be doing there? Yeah, so if, if everything goes according to plan, um, I, <laughs> I intend on going to uh, Jeju Island, which is in this kind of the south, um, just off the South Peninsula, part of South Korea. Um, and, and like I said, focusing on the, the environmental responsible behavior aspect of it. Um, but I think that it's important to realize that you know, if they're going to be international tourists coming in, um, there's also going to be a lot of Korean ecotourists coming into experiences. And as a manager and as a tour operator in that area, you're going to have to understand both of these contexts. So I think that a, a Westerner coming in that is really familiar with the basic core concepts of ecotourism might be, you know, pushed back a little bit by their experience with, you know, the ecotourism manifestation within Korea. Um, because, like I said, there's a lot of interconnection with nature. So their view of development and sustainability ability might be to erect a, a big structure within within a very forested area mm-hmm. but that in their mind and their perception and their definition might not be wrong it's it's unity and it's it's a step forward in development so I think the understanding that there are differences and really looking for the underlying sustainability components to it and see you know is is this really hurting or is this going to be helping and so as these new models emerge um, and as we create new structural models mentally um, where do you 
Where do you see it going? Where do you hope that the field of ecotourism goes? Yeah, I think that, um, you know, right now the they say that soft ecotourism, so more of a superficial relationship with nature, constitutes about 20% of tourism worldwide. So, you know, taking that number into consideration, it's actually a pretty large market segment. Um, but it can definitely grow. And I, I think that we'll see the pendulum start to swing the other way. Um, and what I mean by that is mass tourism way, way, way on, on one side of scale look at maybe a, a cruise ship industry mm-hmm. you know we'll see them kind of start coming to the center with more pressures and 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 different uh different focuses there okay um stepping back a little bit because i'm not familiar with the term of soft tourism versus hard tourism is there a hard tourism yeah yeah so so soft tourism um yeah exactly. i won't mention other industries in which those terms <laughs> pertain on the air of course because i always get in trouble for that stuff but it is hot in here folks i had to, I had to go there I don't know. yeah so soft tourism can can basically be defined as like i said a superficial interaction with nature where it's going to be mediated by by some sort of entity there so um you're going to be a little bit removed from it whereas hard tourism is more of a prolonged deeper experience a lot of you know what what Will is talking about, going in and, and really having these deep connections with the the local communities and with nature, and really understanding the nuances that exist. Can you speak to that a little bit, Will? How have you seen that evolve? You know, I guess our vocabulary is maybe a little different. Um, I, I'm listening to Ben here and thinking, well, I think the, the concepts match. We would think of uh, soft tourism as more relatively non-strenuous uh, tourism um, you know I think one of, one of the problems is the notion of adventure tourism gets confused with ecotourism and basically adventure can be to different people can be anything it could be a cruise is an adventure cruise and there's all kinds of adventure cruise companies out there or it can involve things that can be harmful both to the environment and to the tourists this kind of really hardcore skiing in places you're not supposed to and avalanche that's risk right. and right. helicoptering into areas that uh, you know that that's a whole nother set of questions I think yeah. I, I want to just mention that we're reaching the end of the hour and so we're going to have to start wrapping this one up um, but we could go on and, and talk more about the ways that these deep travel experiences don't line up well with big corporate management necessarily and so the small company approach and the scientifically and culturally inflected research approach to these sectors is so important to, to keep in mind and I want to thank both Benjamin and, uh, and Will for their reflections on how they are staying close to the ground and close to really recent um, findings about this sector as they build new models and live them. It's an exciting thing. And I think that we have a, a final song that sort of captures that horizon question, like that, that right on the horizon. Xavier Rude is a, an artist from Australia and a multi-instrumentalist. He writes songs and is known on the music festival circuit for playing concerts uh, throughout Europe, North America. And he, his song was recommended today by our new communications and web platform coordinator, Bailey Schneider, who hails from Hawaii, where she has a history with community radio with her own family. So this one's going out to Bailey. Hope she's feeling better. And from the whole Hot in Here crew and our illustrious ecotouristic guests, please do look for our blogcast this weekend and the MP3 of this interview on www.hotinhere.com. US. We'll have more for you and links to Journeys International and to Benjamin's work. Stay tuned for Xavier Rudes, Follow the Sun, and thanks for listening today. Breathe, breathe in the air 
set your intentions Dream with care Tomorrow's a new day for everyone and A brand new moon, a brand new sun Tomorrow's a new day for everyone 